Well, we are down to our last look at some of the big important events of the Old Testament as we have been in this series that we've called Story Time. And last, um, in fact, I should just mention next week we start a new series. It's called Family Strong. And you've got two inserts in your program, and that's not a mistake. Those are, there's two on purpose. Uh, those are invitation cards that you can, you can give. And what's really cool about this, there's a website there. You can go to family-strong.net. We are partnering together with several other churches to do a, a message series together. Peoples and uh, Clovis Hills and uh, Woodward Park and North Park, um, Harvest Bible, uh, Bethany, um, and I think there's a couple others in there. And uh, what a what a great uh, thing to be able to work together. So you'll see a banner go up this week and put up the advertising. We're all using the same graphics and images. And I would love for you to, to be a part of that. We'll run from Mother's Day to Father's Day. But let's finish up our fam- our, our uh, story time series. Last week we climbed up Mount Carmel as Elijah repaired an altar and he challenged the Baal prophets and he saw the people repent in response to God's grace. This is a picture of a, of a statue or monument that is actually on Mount Carmel in Israel. And that's Elijah with his sword and he is slaying the prophets of Baal. That is a, just an amazing statue. It's, I don't know. I think it's cool. Um, so, and today we get to add one more segment to our timeline that we've been looking at. So we talked, we started talking about, you know, the founding of Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, who's Israel, Israel's sons, they're in Egypt, they're slaves. They, God, they cry out to God. God sends a deliverer by the name of Moses. Moses leads them out of Egypt, but they wander in the desert because they're stubborn and refuse to trust God to enter the promised land. So then Moses' assistant Joshua does, in fact, lead them in to conquer their promised land. And they settle in a series of tribes, 12 tribes scattered throughout what would today be Israel and, and more. And that you can read about in the book of Judges. But they cry out and they want a king. And so God allows them to have a king. And their first king is Saul. And Saul is followed by David. David is followed by his son Solomon. And it's the glory days. It's the golden era for the nation. They expand. They, they, they prosper. It's just an amazing time for them. But... Uh, uh, they have uh, one king is not so good, the son of Solomon, and the kingdom splits and divides into two. And the, the northern kingdom is Israel, and the southern kingdom is Judah. There's a little cue for you on the screen there. And, um, and they can continue to exist. Judah is somewhat faithful to God. Israel is led by wicked, evil kings until they are finally uh, destroyed, captured, overrun. By the Assyrians, and they fall to Assyria in 722 BC, never to be restored as a kingdom. Sometimes you hear about the ten lost tribes. That's what it's talking about. 722 BC. The way the Assyrians conquered is they would they would take the people from that nation and move them somewhere else, and they would take people from some other place and they'd bring them over to Assyria. I mean, to the new conquered land, and with the hopes that they would intermarry and destroy their culture, and that's exactly what happened. And then finally, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah fell in 586 B.C. to the Babylonians. The Babylonian Empire conquered, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed Solomon's glorious, magnificent temple, and took many people away into captivity in Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. And I've got a, sl- a slide here that just shows a map of possibly the route that many thousands of people were led 
away out of their homeland. Many of the poor were left behind to continue to raise the crops and send taxes and support uh, the Babylonian Empire. But that's, that's what happened. Now, when the way the Babylonians worked is they then would take, they would look for the best and brightest of each conquered people group, each, tri- each nation, and they would assemble them into, uh, uh, you know, and they put them into a school, basically, a three-year training program where they would learn culture and language and, and just all kind of the practices, what it takes to, to, to kind of be a part of that culture. They, would, they were being trained for diplomatic service or administrative service, uh, civil service. And so uh, they, would be, they would look and find that kind of people who were already educated, who already came from means, who already knew, kind of had good skills and knew how to conduct themselves and really sharpen them. It was a brilliant strategy. So you've got to remember the Babylonian Empire covers the known world. And so you've got, you've got to manage all these different places and people. Out of that selection of the best and brightest, four Hebrew young men were selected. Maybe others, but there's four that are named. And it's in the book of Daniel. And hopefully by now you're finding the book of Daniel in your Bible. We're going to be in Daniel 3 in just a moment. And the, the four boys were Daniel, um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But as was the custom, they were given Babylonian names. So um, Daniel is renamed Belteshazzar. And Hananiah is renamed Shadrach. And Mishael is named, renamed Mishach. And Azariah is renamed Abednego. And I made up those pronunciations because nobody really knows how to pronounce them. So you can say it however you like. In today's episode is found in Daniel chapter 3. This, the, the way, what happened with these guys is, is as they were selected, and as they were in training school, Daniel said, you know, uh, we really can't eat all this heavy food. It's not kosher food, and we, don't wanna, we, we can't defile ourselves with eat, eating all this food. And, and so he throws down a challenge, says, look, just feed us, like put us on a, on a vegetarian diet and just see how it goes. And sure enough, they, they really flourished. And they became excellent, and they were appointed... To positions of leadership. And, um, um, and so we're going to be in Daniel chapter 3. Did you find that yet? Daniel is, is late in the New Testament. It's the first of what we call the minor prophets. That's the Bible, kind of the last portion of the Old Testament has the prophetic books. The big long books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, we call them the major prophets because they got big long books. And then there's 13 at the end. We call them minor prophets because they got short little books. That's how it gets divided up. And Daniel is the first of the 13 minor prophets. And he has narrative. He kind of tells a story. But he also has um, prophetic work in there. And his is one of the only places, really, that we get a glimpse of life in Babylon for the, for the uh, Israelite people. Let's stand together as I read and tell Daniel chapter 3. We're going to go uh, all the way through the whole chapter. Daniel 3, 1 says this, King Nebuchadnezzar... King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 4 says, Then a herald shouted, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. 
When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow down to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Well, let me just tell you what happens there. They, the, the, the music sounds and all these officials and, and diplomats and, and important administrative people for the kingdom, they all bow down. Except for these three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel is elsewhere in the kingdom at this point, so he's not at this location. And, and their fellow advisors rat them out. They go to the king and say, there's some Jews. They're not bowing down. They don't, they don't pay any attention to anything you say, king, which is really a stretch of the truth. They really exaggerate the situation. Let's pick it up in verse 13. It says, then Nebuchadnezzar, upon hearing that these boys have not bowed down, flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse... You will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Well, let me tell you what happens from there. Nebuchadnezzar orders that the furnace, he's so enraged, he's so mad, that he orders the furnace be heated up seven times hotter. Now, I don't know if that's physically possible. If you have a 400 degree furnace, can you, can you heat it up to what's 2,800 degrees? I, the point is, he's like, make it as hot as you can. Superheat this thing. And so they do. And that's, it's so hot that when they go to throw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, it's so hot that the flames actually slay the soldiers that are throwing them in. I mean, you talk about collateral damage. But that's what anger and rage will do sometimes. Isn't it true? How much, how much more extra damage happens when people are really enraged? Anyway, um, so then let's pick it up at, at, at verse 19. Uh, sorry, that's where we were. Uh, let's let's pick it up at 24. So the boys are in the fire and verse 24 says, Now suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, Your Majesty, we certainly did. Well, look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth looks like a god or like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire, stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers, officials, governors, advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. 
Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever their race or nation or language, speak a word against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There's no other God who can rescue like this. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. We thank the Lord for his word. Let's be seated together. There's great insights in this chapter and throughout the book, honestly, about you know, how to live as a believer in a pagan regime. Uh, if you ever find yourself thinking that America as we know it is finished, and it probably is, and that these are the worst of times, which they are most certainly not, um, it is worth reminding ourselves that the goal of our time on earth is not to establish some kind of religious and moral political state. That's not why we're here. Um, a Christian is called to represent Christ Jesus and do what he did and make disciples in the face of rejection and persecution. Do I want you to engage in the political process? Of course I do. I think it's great to be a good citizen. But our goal is not to Christianize in the nation, but to follow Jesus. Jesus promised that the world would hate us and mock us and kill us. And that's always been true. It's still true in, in most of the world outside of America. But the early church exploded, exploded in an empire. And, and we're talking now several hundred years later. But the early church exploded in an empire that was completely immoral, corrupt, hedonistic, violent, pagan. Worse than what we live in today, by far. And we're not primarily citizens of America, whatever nation you're a citizen of. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. That's our primary and first allegiance. Anyway, these, this book and these boys teach us about how to live in that, those conditions. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and from here on, we'll call them Rack, Shack, and Benny, uh, as little nicknames, and we'll shout out to Veggie Tales for you on that. They show us that it's possible to be faithful to the Lord and to serve your employee and employer and to serve your country with excellence, even if you have to defy the authorities above you, because there are times you will have to do that. It's easy to trust God when everything goes well, right? When you got a good job and your marriage is good and your health is good and your finances are strong, man, that is that is easy. Those are easy times to trust God, and then it's all good until. Someone demands that you violate your faith and your conscience, and now what? Suddenly all that stuff is sort of like, oh man, what do I do? It happened to me years ago when I was a student in radio broadcasting school in, in uh, Vancouver. Uh, that was actually the year I met my wife. Uh, second year students would be put on a rotation to run the school radio station on air and writing copy and doing news, all those things. And one requirement, one piece for on-air people is that you would have to read the daily horoscope. Every morning they would read the horoscopes, and, and it was a requirement. And I knew I couldn't do that. I knew that's not an option for a believer. The, the Bible expressly forbids astrology. You can read about that in Deuteronomy and Isaiah. And uh, I, I just asked the instructor if I could be excused. I said, I, I can't do that. I'm a, I'm a Christian, and it's, it's not an option for me. Oh, he didn't understand, and he was pretty put off, and he said, well, you'll just be reading it. You don't have to believe any of it. I said, that's not the point. I, I, I can't support that. Well, no, no one really gets into it. It's just fun. It's just entertainment. It doesn't mean anything. 
Well, I said, why do we do it if it doesn't? Well, people love it. And um, finally, the agreement is that, that he would think about it over the weekend. And Well, I, I just wondered, what am I going to do? Am I going to fail because of this decision? And they came back, and sure enough, they made, created an alternative uh, arrangement for me. But it was that moment of like, I have to stand on this. In, in a very small way, that's where Rackshack and Benny were at. But the stakes were so much higher than a little classroom embarrassment. You know, we don't know exactly what the 90-foot-tall statue was, but uh, the Hebrew young man, in spite of being commanded to bow down with everyone else, just wouldn't. They stood by themselves at the cost of their lives. And they weren't just standing up to peer pressure. Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in the world. In the world. I mean, he could do anything he wanted to anyone at any time. And these guys show us that just because someone orders you to do something, you guys, this is so important, just because someone orders you to do something, it's still your choice whether or not to comply. It's still your choice. I'd put it this way. No one can force you to compromise. No one can force you to compromise. Now, you may have faced some compromise situations at work or school, right, or at home, even someone in power, whether it's the the boss or the cool kids or the teacher or even your spouse, you know, they expect you to go along with, with what they say and they do and you know it's not right. The pressure's strong, but let me tell you, you might not feel like you have a choice, but you do. It's your decision whether or not you will comply if you're willing to pay the price. Young people, let me kind of address toward this side of the building for a moment. At some point, and probably has already happened to most of you, Someone will pressure you to get drunk or smoke pot or watch pornography or send nude selfies on Snapchat or lie to your parents or have sex before you're married. That pressure is going to happen, but you don't have to. It's not pleasing to the Lord. And you're just destroying your own life in the process. The same is true for adults. Whatever you're being expected to go along with, No one can force you to compromise. The price of saying no might be very high and the pressure strong and you might lose your job or your friends. But it's still your decision whether or not to pay that price. Now, keep in mind that egotistical bullies are are actually powerless, insecure, fearful people. And they use bullying to get you to go their way. And if they can push you, they feel bigger. My point is that it's not really about you. It's about them and their own insecurities and their own issues. And they try to make it about you. But King Nebuchadnezzar wasn't really challenging Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He was challenging God. He was effectively saying, Oh, you don't want to bow? I'm higher than your God, so you have to bow to me. And they said, No. No. He was challenging God. It wasn't about them. They could see that. Wait, wait. This is a battle between Nebuchadnezzar and God. And if you do have someone like this in your life, by the way, you, you may just really need some help creating some good, healthy distance, some boundaries, perhaps. Um, learn the skill of lovingly speaking up for yourself and not being a jerk about it. I'd recommend a couple of books. Boundaries by Cloud and Townsend is a standard in this, in this topic. Keep Your Love On by Danny Silk is also really helpful. It says less about that than Boundaries does, but uh, just both are excellent on that subject.
I think the toughest moment for Rackshack and Benny had to have been the moment of their decision, which was well before the moment of the music playing. They, they, before that came, they had to have had a conversation with each other. What are we going to do, guys? Like, like, if we don't bow, we're going to die. And we're never going to see our families again. Like, do we just bow? Do we do this? And somehow they made that decision, no. No, we're not going to. I think once they had made the decision, they could stick to it. So that when they didn't, they did have an opportunity to explain themselves, but they kept it really simple. Look at verses 16 to 18 with me. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But if he, even if he doesn't, we want, you to, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Here's what those young men discovered. Faithfulness needs no defense. Faithfulness needs no defense. It's hard, maybe even impossible to, to win trying to defend yourself against the bullies in your life or a demanding person. If the boss wants you to lie for him or her, you know, as an example, there's no amount of explaining that will change their mind. You just have to choose whether or not you're going to do the right thing, whatever the cost. I, you know, if I were to put myself in the shoes of Rackshack and Benny, here's some things that I might have thought, just being honest. I might have thought, well, surely God wouldn't, you know, want us to be burned to death. That doesn't seem right. So, so he'd understand if we bow down just this once, you know, or, or maybe we'd think, well, maybe we should bow down just, just so we can be a good influence to our friends. You know, they'll accept us and they'll listen to us and, and you know, take our witness if, if they can just really identify with us. That's what we need to do. Or maybe we think, well, if we, if we bow, then all the other astrologers and, and, and all those advisors, they'll leave us alone and they'll probably take us more seriously because we'll be one of them. Or, or, or we think this, I think this, well, what good will it be to God if I'm dead? That can't be God's plan. I'm here to serve God. So I'll just bow down and I'll get God's forgiveness and that'll work everything out. Or, or maybe I think, well, everyone else is bowing down. It'll be such a big crowd. No one's even going to notice. I'll just do it quick. No one will notice. We'll get away with it. Or, or maybe, we, maybe we think this, well, we have to bow down. It's what our boss, the king, is demanding. We'll lose our jobs and our lives if we don't do this. But here's what these young men understood perfectly well. Nebuchadnezzar and all the tattletale advisors around them were not the ones to whom they'd ultimately answer. The worst King Nebuchadnezzar could do, the worst he could do is to take their lives. That's the worst. And you know what? We all die eventually anyway. This last check, the human mortality rate is still right up there to 100%. So, what really is the loss? So let's not passively go along with evil just because we can somehow justify it in our own minds. The kind of questions we want to ask are these. What kind of person do I want to be? What kind of man do I want to be? What kind of woman do I want to be? What, you know, do I want to be someone who sort of needs to violate my conscience just to, just to make things easier? Just to get along, just to have friends, just to 
keep a job or be accepted? Do I, do I want to be the woman who gossips or, or known as the mean girl on campus? Do I really want, is that really what I want? Do I want to be the guy who always has to be right even when I know I'm not right, but I won't admit it? Do I, do I want to be the student who got a good grade thanks to a little, little help up the sleeve? Or do I want to be able to face God with a clear conscience? What do I want? What kind of person do I want to be? Because when you're faithful, you don't need to explain yourself. You never do. Not to God, not to any person. Faithfulness needs no offense. When you don't drink to get drunk, you'll never need to explain yourself. You know that? When you stay away from the casino, you'll never need to explain yourself. When you don't lie for the boss, or when you say no to pornography, or when you don't steal from your parents, you'll never need to explain yourself. Your friends might laugh at you, and your boss might fire you, and your spouse might humiliate you, or anything could happen, but they are not your ultimate authority. God is. And faithfulness needs no defense. But here's the catch. It's always, 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 always an act of faith. Is God really going to come through for us or not? And we step first without really knowing. Rakshak and Benny admit as much when they say, well, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, I mean, I wonder, was there like a sliver of doubt in there where they're like, I think he's going to come through. Well, he will come through. But even if he doesn't come through, we're still not going to do it. The Lord did not send a hailstorm to snuff out the fire before they were thrown in. The Lord didn't send a a hurricane to knock over the statue before they were commanded to bow down. God did not strike the king dead. There was no assurance at all that they were doing the right thing. It was purely an act of faith. And the Lord would meet them in the flames. They knew it. Either to welcome them home to heaven or meet them right there and spare their lives. Either way, let me say it this way. Jesus will find you in the flames. Jesus will find you in the flames. Some of you are going through some real flames right now. Hard times. I want to tell you, Jesus is there to find you in the flames. See, you already know there's no promise that the Christian life is going to be easy. If someone told you that, they lied to you. Jesus said, his words are, in this world you will have trouble. You will. It's a promise. Oh, you love the promises of God. In this world you'll have trouble. But don't worry, I've overcome the world, Jesus said. He's promised to be with you right to the very end. And that means you need to be prepared to be tossed into the fire once in a while. But here's the thing. They would not have experienced the visitation from an angel, or maybe it's Jesus himself. I think it is a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ. If they would not have experienced that if they had been spared the flames. If, if you know, The fire is what makes the story. Right? It's what brought a change of heart. To Nebuchadnezzar, it's what made God famous to the world. It's about the flames. And if they had bargained and negotiated and signed petitions and and pleaded for their lives and somehow convinced Nebuchadnezzar to to create an alternate way and, you know, uh, you know, if he'd relented and backed off, you know, we would we wouldn't even be reading this story. It's here because of the flames, because of the fire. The king is not the ultimate authority. In this message, in this passage, our lives are not in the hands of the King Nebuchadnezzar's of the world. Do you realize that? Your life is not in Donald Trump's hand or Hillary Clinton's hand or Barack Obama's hand or the Queen of England. 
You belong to the Lord. They're not the ultimate authority. Only God is. And these boys got that. And should the Lord not rescue in that moment, what's the worst that could happen? Lose everything? Oh, that's possible. Or suffer physically and emotionally? Possible. Loneliness, rejection, abuse? Likely. Maybe worse, as our brothers and sisters in places like Syria and Nigeria are experiencing right now horrific, unspeakable, horrible things. But without the trial, you might miss Jesus, and that would be the biggest loss of all, because Jesus finds you in the flame. And it's just helpful to remember that in their faithfulness, the Hebrew boys weren't simply minding their own business. They were standing up for the whole community of their people. What, what might have happened all behind them if they had bowed down? They were standing up for the community and they were proclaiming to the whole world that God is greater, greater than any idol, greater than any king. And only Yahweh deserves our worship. The obedience, their obedience, my obedience, yours, isn't just for us as individuals. It's for the benefit of the whole community. It's for the benefit of your family, the benefit of your church, the benefit of our city, our nation. So when you hold firm in your faith, you benefit more than yourself. It's, it's the whole community. I want to let you go with just a couple of thoughts, a few suggestions to help you face the trials and flames of life that you may encounter. One is, don't do this alone. Don't do this alone. It is possible to be a solo believer. And you can read in chapter 6 about how Daniel faced the lion's den all alone. But that's not the preferred way. Rakshak and Benny benefited from their small group connection. They benefited from having each other, from having a small community where they could be real and wrestle through that decision. Are we going to stand or not? This fall... Um, I just urge you to join or lead a small connection group uh, where you can just be real and develop some true friendships. Secondly, decide on your integrity boundaries before the furnace gets fired up. Because in the moment, it's too late. You've got to make that decision before. Know your boundaries, know your testimony, and stick to it. And then the, the third tip I would just say is just give praise to God. Both in trouble and out of it. You know, when you remember to praise God, it strengthens you. When something good happens at work or at school, you know, even if it's something small, when you figure out something at home, give God the credit. You know, my, my wife's a registered nurse, and sometimes she, she won't, she's not allowed to tell me anything specific about what happens at work, but she'll say, ah, oh, something happened at work today, and the Lord really helped me with that. And it's just like, praise God. Or last Sunday, I, I think I figured out between my house and the church, there's 15 traffic lights. And last week, Alex and I were coming early, and I think we caught probably 12 greens, maybe more. It was just awesome. Thank you, Lord, for green lights. Awesome. If you'll remember to thank the Lord for the little stuff, you're practiced up and you're prepared and you're ready for when the hard stuff comes because it's already a good habit. It's already a good habit. Make an awareness of God's help and presence with you a normal thing. You can do this. Those boys were just ordinary kids. Like you and me.
They did not look for that. They did not ask for that. But they did not say, why me, God? Why us? So unfair. They knew it wasn't their battle. They knew it was the Lord's battle. And they said, oh, it's the Lord can deliver us. And if he doesn't, it's okay. He's still God. It doesn't change who he is. It's true in your life today, too. He loves you. He's with you. He'll find you. Look to him. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that you saved this encounter for us in your word. And we get to read it and learn from it. And, oh, Lord, we just would love to hang on this story for a while. It's just amazing. But we thank you for the lessons you want to teach us. And God, I'm just asking right now that you make that real to us in, in, a, in a daily way. Lord, I just pray for the person who's facing a terror of a boss right now or a terror of a teacher or peers who are just making life really miserable. God, would you give them the courage tomorrow morning to lovingly and graciously stand up for what's right. God, give them the courage to, to bolster their integrity and stand before you with a clear conscience. Lord, whether it's something in their private life that they're ashamed of, Lord, you know the embarrassment we have when we sin and we fall. We all do it. God, we want to be able to stand before you in, in a clean conscience. Help us, Lord. Help us, I pray. And God, we just um, thank you that you are with us at all times. And church, as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I do want to just give you that opportunity. If you don't know this Jesus that we've been talking about this morning, you want to give your life to him, I invite you just raise your hand and I'll pray with you or someone will pray with you after the service. We have some prayer people here. Anybody like that today, you want to give your life to Jesus? All right. Awesome. Awesome. Anyone else? Yeah. God loves you. He's with you right there in the flames. Remember that this week. God, we're grateful for you and what you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.